Well, please take uh, God's word and turn with me to the fifth book of Moses, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 2. Got a bit of a longer reading today, beginning in Deuteronomy, chapter 2, verse 24, through chapter 3, verse 22. So let me encourage us, before we read God's word, to give our attention to the hearing of the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. I better grab a drink of water before I start. The word of the Lord. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sion, The Amorite king of Heshbon and his land begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedmoth to Sion, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. Sion The king of Heshbon would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand, as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to take possession, that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From a roar, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near. That is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok, and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Adrir. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og, also the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left, and we took all his cities at that time. 
There was not a city that we did not take from them, 60 cities, the whole region of Agab, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides many unwalled villages, and we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sion, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children." But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Salica and Adrir, I always stumble on that one. I think it's a Drei, actually. Cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth according to the common cubit. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory belonging to Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities, the rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the king of Og, that is all the region of Argob, I gave to the half tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jair, the Manassite, took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havoth Jair, as it is to this day. To Makir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead, as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river of Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border from Shinareth, as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the people of Israel, Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So, the will, so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. I need another drink after that reading. Well, imagine how you'd feel with an army of chariots barreling towards you, and it sounds like thunder. 600 chariots of Egypt with a whole army behind chasing after you to overtake you. You you thought you were free, 
but now your back is up against the sea and you have nowhere to go. The chariots are getting closer and you can see the, the banners of Pharaoh's army behind. And he's getting closer. The sound is getting louder. And there's pandemonium all, all around you. People are in a panic. People are screaming. People are pressing in around you. And, and you're shaking. And then a calm voice speaks in the midst of the chaos. It's the voice of Moses. And he says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord fights for you. And all you have to do is stand and be silent. And Moses lifts up his staff and he stretches out his hands to the sea and a strong wind blows through. It whips across your face and you see with your very own eyes the waters divide and pile up like walls on each side to form a passageway. So you pass through on dry ground and as you do so the angel of the Lord and the pillar of clouds stand between you and Pharaoh and his army. Pharaoh who, who hates you. Pharaoh's, who, who, Pharaoh whose heart is obstinate and hard and full of uh, desire to, to overtake the Israelites. And so after you pass through the waters, Pharaoh, even though he has seen these mighty wonders performed, chases after you. But that's a mistake, isn't it? One more time, Moses stretches out his hand and the sea returns to its place, crashing down on Pharaoh and his army. And as Exodus says, as the morning light dawned, began to shine, God's people started to sing. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a warrior. And friends, the story of redemption that we read in scripture revolves around this epic battle. And if you you don't understand this battle, you, you really can't understand the Bible because the Bible says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3 Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did the Son of God take flesh? That's why. And this is not only the larger story in which the conquest of Canaan takes place that we're going to think about today. It's the larger story which we inhabit, 
which we are living in right now, regardless of whether you know it or not, you are at war. This is not peacetime. The Christian life is a holy war in which each of us are called to fight by faith in our crucified and risen Lord who fights for you. And so with that in mind, this bigger story in view, I'd like us to consider the passage before us today in in three parts. First, the conquest of uh, Sion and, and Og. Secondly, the settlement of the Transjordan tribes. And then thirdly, the reminder that the Lord our God fights for you. So let's first look at the conquest of Sion and Og. As as Moses delivers his final message on the plains of Moab, just before the Israelites cross the Jordan to conquer the land of Canaan, he, he not only warns them about their failures in the past, which we've already seen, he also encourages them from victories in the past. Right? Don't, don't forget in this section of Moses' farewell address, he is essentially reminding Israel of, of where they've come from and who they are. He's telling them their story. And two of the most important victories that ev- Israel ever experienced are described here in Deuteronomy chapter 2, starting in verse 24, on through chapter 3, verse 11. These verses retell the story, the stories of how they defeated these two kings. The king of Sion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. These, these victories were a really big deal. They were, they were really important because they took place at the beginning of the conquest. They were the first two military victories Israel experienced as they began to take possession of the land that the Lord was giving to them. And perhaps that's why these two victories over these two kings are, are not only mentioned five times in the book of Deuteronomy, they are memorialized another 16 times in other books of the Old Testament. God's word, what we need to see from that, is God's word routinely reminds God's people of past victories in order to encourage them to keep going in the face of present challenges. And and how many of us, friends, how many of us are facing various challenges? We need to remember. We need to be reminded. And when Moses says that God hardened Sion, the king of Heshbon, in verse 30, we could simply read over that. But the reality is that phrasing would have sent a thrill through the ranks of Israel because it would have reminded them of how God had defeated Pharaoh. You see, with these allusions, the text is calling God's people to remember what God had done in the past. There are actually ten times in the book of Exodus where we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and ten times that we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so right alongside of one another, we have these dual affirmations of God's total sovereignty as well as man's responsibility, but this echo would have brought the whole story to mind. Past victories 
prepare God's people to face present challenges. This is how we are supposed to use our memory in the Christian life. I think a great example of this is, uh, is David. You remember David when he was still young and Goliath is taunting Israel. He, he, he said to Saul, who didn't want to fight Goliath, the Lord who delivered me, right, past tense, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Past victories gave him confidence, not confidence in himself, but confidence in the Lord for future victories. And so I think as we reflect on this passage, we we should ask ourselves, do we know our own history? Do we know our own story? Can we recount to ourselves the mighty deeds of the Lord, both in terms of general redemptive history, but also in terms of our own individual lives, what, what God has done in our lives, what he's done in and through us, what God has overcome in our lives. This is what Moses reminds us of in this portion of his message. He reminds us of the great victories God has won in and through his people. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 24. Let's keep building on this idea. There the Lord commands Israel, Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sion the Amorite, the king of Heshbon in his land, began to take possession and contend with him in battle. There's something truly wonderful and amazing in in that verse, if you recognize it. I wonder if you see it. The truly wonderful thing is that the battle is won before it's even begun. The battle is won before it's even begun. Multiple times the text underscores this point. That the battle is won before it's begun. When God calls his people to rise up and fight, he says, Behold, I have given into your hand Sion the Amorite, the king of Heshbon, and his land. Even though it hasn't happened yet. God describes the victory in the past tense as if it were an already accomplished reality. Friends, that teaches us an incredibly important principle for the Christian life, how we are meant to live the life of faith. We live, we live in the already accomplished reality of Christ's victory. This is what it means for us to rise up as Moses commanded the Israelites in verse 24. We rise up in the confidence that the ultimate victory has already been won by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Even though there are real challenges, real difficulties, and real battles to be fought, we live in light of the already accomplished reality of Christ's victory. This is the logic of the gospel. And so, so for example, let's just take this and apply it to one aspect of the Christian life in relation to struggle with your own personal sin. How are we supposed to think about it? Paul says that we should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Why is that? Because the death that Jesus died, he not only died for sin, he died to sin in order to break 
its power in our lives. And so when you think of your sin as a believer, you, what you, the image you should really have in your mind is Goliath dead on the ground with his head chopped off. Because that's what Jesus did on the cross. He decapitated it and took its power away. He destroyed its power. Now, another thing we can add to that, to that story is after, after David killed Goliath, what, what happened? You know, did, did, Israel, did Israel go home? Did Israel you know, rest on their laurels? No, the story then says, no, then they, they chased after the enemy. They still fought, but they did it in light of the reality that the decisive victory had already been won. And that's how we live the Christian life, brothers and sisters. But I think we should pause here for a minute and remind ourselves of a couple of important things. Because no doubt, as we were reading this passage, if you were paying attention, and I hope you were, it, it probably raised some questions, some ethical questions, which we will uh, address more directly and at length as we continue to work through the book of Deuteronomy together. All I want to say today is that we need to remind ourselves that God's people are no longer called to advance God's kingdom by fighting flesh and blood enemies in God's name. There's, there's a lot of potential for misunderstanding as we read this very violent text. And this text and others like it have indeed at various times throughout church history been grossly misunderstood and misapplied. So we should remember that God's people are no longer called to advance God's kingdom by fighting against flesh and blood enemies in God's name. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 6 where he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly Places. Likewise, as he says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See what Paul is saying in those two passages? We, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, and the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So we cannot confuse the mode of warfare that we are now in in this period of redemptive history. Here and elsewhere, we discover that God administers his kingdom differently in this period of redemptive history in the New Covenant than he did under the old covenant that he made with Israel. See, under the old covenant, God's people, they did, they fought flesh and blood enemies in God's name because God's people were largely a flesh and blood nation state, people of Israel. It was through Israel God promised to raise up the promised Messiah, the seed of the woman, the physical descendant of Abraham who would deal the, the death blow to Satan. Like, uh, like David did, right? Like David 
dealt the death blow to Goliath with all of his snake-like armor. It's one of the neat things about the David and Goliath story is there are allusions very clearly to Genesis chapter 3 as Goliath's armor is described in scale-like serpentine terms. But this is what Jesus did on the cross. And just as, just as David used Goliath's own weapon against him, right, when he chopped off his head, so Jesus used Satan's own weapon. He who had the power of death, the Son of God, conquered Satan by dying on a cross. And now that the people of God are no longer a one, one nation state among the nations, the people of God no longer use physical weapons to fight in God's name. The church doesn't use physical force to further its cause. Nevertheless, okay, with that qualification, I, I want to suggest there's a great deal we can learn from the violent language that we read in this passage. I want to go further than that and say we need to hear this brutal text. When Moses calls Israel to devote all of God's enemies to destruction, leaving no survivors lest they be led astray to idolatry and turn away from the Lord in sin, this at the very least teaches us how we need to treat our sin in the Christian life. Think about Jesus' own words. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. It's just as brutal, isn't it? And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. My friends, there can be no peaceful coexistence with sin. And we need this kind of language. We need these kind of stories to help us see the brutal reality of this battle that we are engaged in. If nothing else, this text um, teaches us to take our fight with sin much, much more seriously than we often do. For as John Owen once famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That brings us to the next section in this passage, the, the settlement of the Transjordan tribes. And this is in chapter 3 from verses 12 to 20. So in Deuteronomy 3, verses 12 through 20, we have really this extensive description of the land being divided up among some of the tribes of Israel after they had defeated Sion and Og on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So right, they fight this battle, and then what you basically have is a description of the allotment of this newly conquered land. And this description of the land is, frankly, so long and so detailed that we, are, uh, we can very easily uh, get distracted. I mean, let's be honest, if we're going through this section in our, maybe our annual Bible reading, 
when you get to a passage like this, your eyes may glaze over and um, you, know, you may kind of skip over it because none of it seems to have any relevance to our lives. We don't, we don't know these, these places and it may even come across as a bit boring. After all, uh, hearing about various military exploits, including victories over giants who have beds made of iron that are something like nine feet in length, that's a, that's a lot more exciting than reading about a land survey. Unless, unless this is your land. And the one thing that makes a land survey interesting is if it's your land. Then it's very interesting, isn't it? Last week I was uh, talking to Pam, my, my, my mother-in-law, and she and her sisters are uh, getting ready to sell their parents' home, and so they're going through stuff, deciding you know, what to keep, what they need to get rid of, and Pam's dad, I look forward to meeting him one day. He sounds like such a neat individual. He, was, uh, he enjoyed woodworking, and one of the things he made for Pam was a cradle. Now, if this cradle was given to you, left to you, you might not think very much of it, right? You might think it's something to just ignore or dispose of. But it means something to her because it was made for her and it was given to her by someone who matters very, very much to her. And if you could see, if, we, if you could see the, the cradle the way she does, you, you might begin to look at it in a different light. And, and that's what we need to do when we look at this land survey. We need to look at it as if we have a stake in the hills and in the valleys and in the rivers and in the borders and the cities because there is a very real sense in which we do. The lines have fallen for us in Pleasant places, the psalmist says. He's, he's rejoicing in the, the inheritance of land that he has received from the Lord in the promised land. But you see, Israel's inheritance in the land ultimately points us to our inheritance in Christ. And so as we read these verses, we shouldn't simply see, you know, an old piece of furniture or a, a, an ancient land survey, but a better country. A a city whose whose builder and foundation is God himself. See, according to God's promise, as we read in passage like 2 Peter chapter 3, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's, It's ours by divine gift. We are heirs of God and heirs of the world, Paul says. We have a stake in it. And so we need to see these Old Testament passages in that light. So notice that Moses gives the land a remarkably comprehensive description. Because that's what you do when you have a stake in the land. And we should be no less eager to survey all of the various wonders and blessings that we receive in Christ Jesus in In a world without end, amen, we will sing later today. We have obtained an inheritance to the praise 
of his glory. We have been given a place to dwell. Where God himself will dwell among us. We are citizens of a city whose builder and foundation of God. And this, dear friends, is cause to worship, isn't it? Now in verses 18 through 20, Moses gives commands. He he gives commands that really flow out of this gift that's been given to these Transjordan tribes. The tribes who have received their land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And these instructions have, I think, a great deal of practical application for our lives today. Because think about this. What would the temptation have been for those tribes that had already received their land? The temptation, I think, would have been to say, well, we've got ours. Good luck to you guys. Why why should we cross over the Jordan River and risk life and limb? We've, We've already received our inheritance. I'll pray for you. We'll pray for you as you go over to fight those those big guys on the western side of the Jordan River. I think that would have been a real temptation. But Moses cuts off that possibility, doesn't he? They'd already received their portion, so it would have been tempting to not help the other tribes as they took the land. But notice what Moses says to the Transjordan tribes in verse 18. The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. So who's going to go into the fray first? The ones who have already received the promised blessing. The ones who've already been given their rest. Their family and children are settled in the land. And so the men of valors must go with and before their brothers to take what the Lord was giving to them. So God commanded the men of the Transjordan tribes to cross the Jordan River and be first to go into battle because they had already received their inheritance. They were not permitted to enjoy their rest until all of the other tribes could enjoy it with them. I think this teaches us something about what it means to be a part of God's people. That the people of God really are one. That they really are to be of one heart. I think this was, this was clearly reflected in the fellowship of the early church in a passage like Acts chapter 4 where Luke says in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is how God's people are expected to treat one another. Those who have are eager to help those who do not yet have. And after all, one of the things, one of the principles that guides us in the Christian life is what, what, have you, what, have, what do you have that you did not first receive? Now this brings us to the last section. Uh, the Lord your God, the assurance that the Lord your God fights for you. And this is in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3. After uh, commanding the Transjordan tribes to lead the way when Israel crossed over the Jordan 
Moses then turns to Joshua, who's going to succeed him in leadership, because Moses is not going to go as the leader of God's people. And he reminds him of all that God had done before his very eyes. Just think about what what Joshua had seen. And notice that Moses is commanding him to consider that vision. But here's the thing. That is the same basic exhortation that we receive in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Think about Paul's words to the Galatian Christians when he he says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That's a striking way of putting it because Galatia is a far way off from Jerusalem and none of these None of these believers, as far as we know, were physically present while Jesus hung on a cross in Jerusalem. None of them were privy to that sight. But what Paul is saying is that the Galatians' experience of hearing the gospel in the power of the Spirit, that it was as if they had become eyewitnesses of the battle, of the crucifixion. It was as if the reality of his death had been placarded before their eyes to see. And I wonder, wonder, have you seen Jesus that way? I wonder if you have seen in Jesus Christ the God who fights for you. What are you facing? I know you've seen what it is that you are facing, but have you seen The God who fights for you. He fights for you, as the Bible says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. There are variations of that phrase, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, found no less than six times in the book of Deuteronomy alone. And this phrase is always used in the context where the Lord is being described as a warrior who fights for his people as he led them out of Egypt. But where, where do we ultimately see God's mighty hand at work? Where do we ultimately see God's outstretched arms? It's, it's not only in Egypt, it's not only at the Red Sea, it's not only in you know, Joshua and the battle of Jericho, or Samson crushing skulls with the jawbone of an ass, or David sinking a smooth stone into the forehead of a giant. It ultimately is on the cross that God stretches out his hands for battle as he fights for you. Have you seen it? Have you seen it with your own eyes? Have you seen Jesus Christ publicly portrayed as crucified? Behold the Lord your God who fights for you. Behold the outstretched arms of the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. He's crushed the serpent. He's destroyed the works of the devil. He's taken away your sin. He has shattered its power in your life. He's conquered death. He did it for you. Did it for you. And so this passage too says to us, Rise up. Listen to the voice 
of our leader. And do not fear, for it is the Lord our God who fights for you. I'm going to continue to think about that as we come to the Lord's table this morning. But first, let me lead us in a moment of prayer. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you for this text of Scripture which teaches us so many wonderful realities of the Christian life and how you lead your people and how you provide for your people. We thank you that you are the Lord, our God, who fights for us, and you've ultimately revealed that in the life and death and victorious resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you now that we have the opportunity to come by the Spirit to fellowship with our King, our Savior, and our Defender. Bless us as we do so. We ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.